0: You have it there. Uh, I wanted to bring this back to the forefront because we really started with this—that there were five primary warnings in the Book of Hebrews. We've covered four of them: Hebrews 2:1 to 4, Hebrews 3:7 uh, to 4:11, Hebrews 6:4 to 8, Hebrews 10:26 to 31, and we we may or may not get to the fifth and final warning in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 to 29. But I want to start in on the notes tonight and read a little bit in the notes that the journey of the Christian life is its a pilgrimage. It's a race. Both of these terms are, both of these metaphors are employed in the Holy Scriptures when it talks about the life of faith or the journey. And I've added one in, and it's a climb up a high mountain. And so I have... Uh, uh, one of the things that has always fascinated and whenever I get a chance or whenever it comes to mind, I like to go on YouTube and you can actually see now a video of a good high definition video of climbers, how they climb Mount Everest, how they summit Mount Everest. And it's an interesting thing. It's actually a 30 day process to climb Mount Everest um, because once you get above camp four, It's called Camp 4 on on Mount Everest. You're above 28,000 feet, and that's called the death zone. And there you only have so much time to survive, even with oxygen, right? And so uh, once you get above Camp 4 in the death zone, you basically have two days to live. You are either going to summit or not, and you're going to get down or you're going to die on the mountain, right? Because what happens is the body begins to consume itself. Because the oxygen content is one third of what it is at sea level and so the summit push begins at 11 p.m at night it's actually right around this time of year this is the this is the time of year that you have a whole bunch of teams trying to summit Mount Everest but it begins at 11 o'clock at night in pitch darkness and at 18 hours the o2 it reduced flow to get up back and down so they have 18 hours to get up to the summit and back down to camp 4 and that's on reduced oxygen because of they need to conserve it so the most famous one there was actually a book it was a fascinating book uh by the same man who wrote uh the the book of um what what was that gloucester fishing boat there um the perfect storm, the perfect storm. he wrote he wrote this book too about a 1996 climbing expedition, led by two men, Rob Hall and Mark Fisher. Uh, the, the, the night temperatures were beautiful, not too bad, around minus 20. Uh, and it took 12 hours to make the summit. But on the way back down, a freak storm started as a cyclone in the Bay of Bengali, swept up the range and the climbers were caught in a blinding blizzard with 80 mile an hour winds and minus 40 temps. They were on the north ridge, and some still on the summit, farther down, but still well above Camp 4. Breck Weathers, a climber from Texas, was caught somewhere between Camp 4 and Camp 3 on a narrow ridge with a 4,000 foot drop on one side and a 2,000 foot drop on the other. Three other climbers were stranded with him. One died, two were rescued, and he was left for dead his face when they came upon him his face was frozen to the ground so they left him for dead when you die on Mount Everest they leave you there they don't they don't uh, they don't really attempt to take you back down because it's just it involves too much uh... the notes are Mm -hmm. right there uh... it's too much too much of a risk for the sherpas and the rescue climbers to do that much to everybody's amazement even the sherpas later he struggled back to camp Four, having been without supplemental oxygen now for some time he lost his right arm from the elbow down the tip of his nose and the fingers on his left hand for frostbite but he was one of the few who survived how did he survive in that hopeless situation his account of those last few hours the picture before him of his wife and children the overwhelming love that he had for them and the desire to see them again that focus gave him strength to free himself from being frozen to the ground, pick himself, up, pick himself up and make it back to camp four. This is an absolutely fascinating story. If you get a chance to, they made a movie of it, it's called Into Thin Air, but the, book, the books are always better than the movie. The book is also entitled Into Thin Air so the thing that saved his life was the object of his mental focus as he found himself facing certain death and overwhelming odds he survived while both rob hall mark fisher who were much more experienced climbers along with six others died on the mountain well why did i do i start this off with this over on the next page because it presents more than just a striking corollary to the journey up the mountain that is the Christian pilgrimage through this life. Whether you make it or not will be determined by the object of your focus and the love you have for the object of your focus. So as we look into that, as we consider this, this is, this is what propelled the patriarchs, what propelled all the personages in Hebrews chapter 11. Now. We, I think we saw very clearly that they were able to do great things in spite of their humanity, right? And that was really, you know, the, the emphasis of Hebrews chapter 11 is they were humans. They had flaws. They had massive failures. But in the end, they com- they accomplished great things, the great things that God had given them to do because of the faith that he had given to them. And they kept their eyes focused on eternity. Remember, I said that Abraham was given the land, but he knew that he would not inherit that land until after the resurrection. And so, that is what drove them, their love for God and their, their absolute rock-hard faith in the promises that God had made them. And that is the same thing that propels us. Now here, in the context of the book of Hebrews, let's pull it all back that this was written to Messianic Jews who are undergoing a very difficult time. They were, for the most part, shunned from their, from their families. Um, most of them were put out of the synagogue, even though this was written to Hellenistic Jews, which tended to be more liberal-minded, mm-hmm. more embracing of the Hellenistic culture. Nevertheless, they were still, for the most part, considered uh, untouchable within the, within, the, within the greater Jewish community. So they had all of those obstacles to deal with, and then, of course, there was there was the theological struggle that they were under, based upon the fact that their teaching, their the Jewish teaching, always taught that the Messiah would be a human being. So they're faced with the reality of being brought face-to-face with the correct scriptural teaching from the Old Testament, that the Messiah was not only human, but he was divine. So there was that struggle, and then, then the struggle That the, the message of the Messiah would hold higher prominence and higher authority than that given through angels as the law was delivered to Moses through the mediation of angels. Okay, so now Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 begins with this. Therefore, on the basis of everything that we have looked at and covered in the first 11 chapters of Hebrew, we also... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness. Now, that's an interesting term. One of the, uh, one of the I was watching, I, I watched these YouTube videos. They actually have some pretty good stuff on YouTube, you know. And they were visiting ancient sites in Rome, right. And one of the places, one of the videos was about this place called Circus Maximus, right. Which you, is still there today. It's a park now. But Circus Maximus was a stadium that could hold approximately 250,000 people. And what it was was an oval-shaped stadium with a big track running down the middle where they would have chariot races. They would have chariot races, and they would run marathons and things like that while the people up in the stands were cheering them on. That's exactly what this is picturing here. That great cloud of witnesses all of the saints and all of the patriarchs and all of the faithful that have come before us it's like they're in the stands we are now in we're now in the race and they're up there cheering us on right they're cheering us on so it says therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness right that cloud of witness means you know the faith and testimony of all those who have come before us it says let us lay aside Every weight. All right. And so naturally when you're going to run a race, when you're going to run an endurance race, a marathon, you want to, you don't want to be carrying around backpacks. You don't want to be carrying around weights. So the idea there is that you're, you, you enter this race with intention, right? That you're going to run this race and you're going to run it in an adequate way. Let us, uh, let us lay aside every weight. And the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So it's it's an endurance race. It's a long haul. But notice here remember now uh, when we were talking about the uh, you know the the Everest climber uh, on Mount Everest what kept him alive even though everybody left him for dead was the fact that he was focused on his wife and his children. That was the object. The object of his love kept his focus there and gave him the strength to pry his face out of the frozen ground, get back up, and then walk down uh, to Camp 4. Well, look at what it says there. Looking unto Jesus, verse 2, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So, so we take these words at face value, that although we can't see them, those who have gone before us are sort of cheering us on, right? We're, and that we are locked into this endurance race. It is just that it's an endurance race and and i think we've all maybe experienced it or maybe uh, you know we've seen the uh, the the flash in the pan christian you know they come out of the gates and they sprint quickly but they soon peter out right this is an endurance race it's an endurance race you go into it saying this is going to be a long haul race this is not something that i am going to accomplish in the next 15 or 20 minutes and so I'm going sh- to run this race with the least amount of weight that I can. So now let's stop and talk about that for a moment. When it says there in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, let, aside, let us lay aside every weight. So what do you think that weight is potentially referring to? Distractions of other things, Distractions of other things right, Doug? The cares of this world, right? And so that expresses itself along a wide continuum, right? Work, material things, relationships, you know, all of those things which are necessary components. It's not like, you know, we can just forsake those and go live in a cave somewhere, right? That's a necessary part of life. It's actually a necessary part of the expression of our faith that we need to be able to do all those things. We need to work. You know we need to take care of our families and we even need to recreate right engage in recreation and rest right Jesus called his disciples out to us you know to a, a remote place for them to rest in the midst of the ministry but so we have to incorporate this into our life of faith but we there has to be a balance there right and so if, if there's too much of those things or if they're out of balance then their net effect is a weight on us, which, which in turn, it, it slows us down and it makes us more difficult to run this race of endurance. So we have this weight and then we have the weight of sin. Right? And, uh, and I don't... I think, I think, and maybe it's just my perception, but I think for the most part in American Christianity, the emphasis on holiness on personal holiness is not where it should be right i think there i think personal holiness is a big thing and i think we've all experienced it when we're working when we're walking in lockstep with god right when we're not being governed by sin that that it's it's a lot easier to keep moving forward in the faith right And so, you know, a a, a couple of people have asked me, just a minute, a couple of people have asked me, you know, over the years that, you know, if you, if by chance God should lead you on occasion into into some sort of deliverance event, right, where there's someone who is struggling with demonic opposition, what is it that needs to be paramount for you to prepare for that? And my response is, you need to be clean. That is, is, there cannot be life-controlling sin in your life because they will seize upon that. They will seize upon that. So so the cultivation of personal holiness is, is something that is important and it should be a priority. Which brings me to another topic that you hear very little talked about in the church today. And even myself, much to my shame, and that is the issue of fasting. Why isn't there, why don't we ever talk, first of all, we don't talk about it. And what is its benefit? What is the benefit of fasting? I've read some books written, you know, from, on the charismatic genre of the faith. That almost presents it as like twisting God's arm. You know, you twist God's arm with your fast. But what is it about fasting that's beneficial? And that actually aids in what we're being joined to in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Huh? Well, it's purifying, but, you, you know, uh, you know when, you, when you come right down to it, the strong. When you think of all of the urges that are, that are, that are, part of being human, what are the urges? The urges are sex and food, and the more powerful urge of the two is food. Right, and uh, and you know try going, you know try going, twelve hours without food, and your body's going to start screaming for food and after a while that's all you're going to be able to think about is food right and so what is fasting the way I understand it is useful in bringing the body under control right and so that is I think that is a tool in the cultivation of personal holiness that we're we're not doing you know when we were on vacation you know, I thinking about these things. I wake up in the middle of the night and I, I can't go back to sleep. So I think about these things. And you know, I said, you know what? We're gonna go on vacation here at school, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a twenty-four hour fast. Did it happen? No. You know, I mean, I I think I've, I think the longest fast I've been able to do, is two days. You know, and my body was just screaming. All I could think about was you know cannolis and cheeseburgers and you know but but fasting i think is is a tool that we don't talk about often right uh, but the but it's certainly talked about in the new testament right yes well,
1: Seth, one of the things i think you've you mentioned before from the paul bystrom i remember this is
0: fasting from things that you normally do to center on god yeah. i i mean it's on top yeah. of what you're talking about yeah yep thing. yeah there are those types of fast too like So back at HBI, I taught, you know, I I used to teach, I taught church history. And as you read back in church history, it it was so, it became so abused and so absurd the way it was practiced, right? That they would, that, you know, they would fast by not eating pastries, right? And to satisfy their, you know, their need for extravagance, they would, they would, uh, they would dissolve pearls in wine, You know, so obviously, right, that that negates the whole purpose of a fast. But you're right. There there are different levels of fasting. The whole point being is to exercise control over the flesh, right, and to, to begin to gain control over the flesh. Because you know what? My flesh has a will of its own, right? So there's my mind. And my heart is the inner man, but my flesh has a will of its own, and and it it uh, it impresses itself upon my mind, right? Yeah, it's not easy. So fasting is just one tool to help bring the body into subjection to the inward man. So so you know it can be taken to extremes. Like I was telling you know my omnibus students when when you look back in church history. The the whole monastic movement began as the anchorite movement, you know. And I picked on, you know, like I think those of us who've come out of Roman Catholicism, we've heard of Saint Anthony, right? So Saint Anthony was an anchorite monk who lived in the caves in the in the Sinai wilderness. He actually lived in the caves, and his his clothing was um, was a was a, a camel hair. You know, he was trying to emulate John the Baptist, but he wanted to do one better, so he purposely infested it with lice. But this is a true story. And then, and he would survive on like one leaf of one lettuce leaf a day, and on holidays he would splurge and throw a couple of olives in with it. But so, so it was about mortifying the flesh. That's what they thought they needed to do. So, that's the extreme, right? But there's also the opposite extreme where, let's face it, fasting is, is basically a, a lost discipline for the most part in Christianity today, yet it's clearly talked about in the New Testament. So, these are the things that help us to understand and to, and to actually accomplish what it's talking about here in Hebrews chapter twelve verse one, and what should propel us forward is not we do those things because we're trying to, we're trying to gain brownie points with God, but we're we're keeping our eyes focused on the Savior, right? He's the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, right? So he he was. So we focus, our focus is on the Savior. Jesus' focus was on the great company, the great multitude of redeemed that he was, going to, he was going to rescue out of the world. That was his singular focus. The reality is we were his singular focus. That's what propelled him forward to endure everything that he suffered and endured. And our part, our focus, should be on him. Now, you know, we're talking, about, we're talking about laying aside, you know, every weight and laying aside the sin that ensnares us. That was not an issue with the Savior. But the cares of this world were an issue with the, with the Savior. He suffered from hunger. He suffered from thirst. He suffered from s- sleepless nights. But he was able to bring his body, he was human, just like we are, minus the sin nature. So he was subject to the same, there you go, biological urges. And he brought his body into subjection to his spirit. And uh, we're, we're, we're taught to emulate this. Okay. Now in the notes on page 2, we jump to verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So so so? what is so this verse is pregnant with a whole bunch of information. First of all, it tells us point blank. There are going to come seasons in our walk of faith where we are going to be Subject to becoming weary and discouraged in our souls, mm-hmm. right? I was listening to, again, I woke up this morning about 4 o'clock. I couldn't get back to sleep. So I was listening to um, a sermon. I love listening to Scottish preachers. I just love listening to Scottish George preachers. George. What's his Who? George. And the, his, his was a sermon on, on Job 3. You know when job says why was i even born you know and i'm listening to that you know and so and so there are seasons that will come into our lives and god will bring them into our lives where we have to be careful because we can become weary and discouraged in our souls so now what we're getting first of all we're getting in verse three pretty clear promise that that's going to come those kinds of seasons are going to come into our lives but we're also given the way to avoid those things taking control over us, right? Which you know, which uh, which is, it's something when you're going through a hard time, when you're going through big changes in your life, when you've gone through a period of suffering where, you know, your internal compass, I call it the inertial reference unit. You know, airplanes use an inertial reference unit for navigation when it gets completely knocked off where you you sort you feel sort of lost and adrift and it's easy in that place to fall to begin to fall to negative thought patterns. Right? Oh woe is me. You know, better to, to just, you know, be done with this and go on to the eternal home. And so I've actually had to confess that as something that I had to overcome and still struggle to overcome. That's part of my morning prayer. I am so as a result of all of the, you know, the big changes that have happened in my life over the big year and over the last year and a half become so predisposed to having a negative outlook on things that I have to confess that and ask God to help me stay positive, to look for the positive in, in what could come down the road today. So so I think what we get in verse three is a way to to kind of mediate how discouraged and weary we can become. Okay, so that it and that way is to think about Jesus. Now, I'll go through that first, but then I'll give you, you know, a more practical, um, you know, someone, a conversation that I had with. Someone I won't mention his name because this is on tape, but I, I think as soon as I start talking about it, you're going to know exactly who I'm talking about. But, but right here in the text, it says to consider Jesus, to fix your mind and focus continually upon Jesus, who endured such hostility. And that word hostility there means ferocious opposition. It came in many forms and from many sources, including at times those who genuinely loved him. For example, Peter, right? When uh, when Jesus said to him that he's going to be crucified, what did Jesus say? Get thee behind me, Satan! Right. In that moment, Satan was actively acting through Peter, who loved Jesus, right? Okay. So it comes in many forms, including at those times who genuinely love this. Now think about this for a moment. So. No matter what you're going through, right? No matter what period you come into in your life, as a believer, you're going to go through these things, no doubt. It's, God is going to bring them into your life, right? That what you may, whatever you're going through, how, whatever difficulty, whatever suffering you're going through at that time, it's relative, right? First of all, it's always relative to what the suf- what the Savior suffered through, right? But now think about this, so, you know, I was talking to, you know, uh, an individual just a couple of weeks ago, you know, who's, who's just beginning to undergo cancer treatments, you know, radiation cancer treatments, and I was talking with him and I said, so and so, how are you doing? He says, you know, he says, uh, I was feeling really bad about myself, he goes, but, but the place where I go he says there were a bunch of women there who were getting chemotherapy you know they had they had lost all their hair and they were wearing those you know those things that they tie around their head and he said and I said to myself what have I got to complain about so you see how it's relative so so when we go through those hard seasons in our lives you, you, if you stay focused on Jesus and just what He endured, and what what propelled Him through that the horror the horror that He suffered and the betrayal and you know the Pharisees and the scribes they were constantly trying to lay traps against Him you know and then they were trying to get Him to offend the Herodians and. You know, if he offended the Herodians, then he was going to have a problem with the Romans because the Herodians were really friendly with the Romans, you know. And, and, you know, he was able to sidestep all of that. But, you know, imagine this guy, if it's even lawful to call him a guy, who never did anybody any harm. And he endured such hostility. You know, I think, if, I think that is one of the strongest proofs for the divinity of Christ because let's face it if you and I were to you know you know were to try and do that we would have said you know what I'm done with these people let them roast in hell for all I care you know but he kept going he kept going and so when we're going what this is saying is when we're going through those difficult times right and it's going to get to the issue of chastening here which is another thing that we need to consider when we're going through difficult times right is stay focused, it's re- our suffering is always relative. First of all, it's relative to time and space, right? Which in comparison to eternity is nothing. It's a grand of sand on a seashore of sand. So it's relative from that perspective by staying focused on eternity. Guys, we're just here for a very short time we for a short time. And think of, think of what we are suffering now. It's for our benefit. We'll get into that here in just a second. But think about that suffering relative to those who are going to go into eternity without Christ. Right? So you stay focused on Christ. Look at him he was he stayed focused by being focused on us that's what propelled him through all that suffering he was able to see through the suffering to the joy that was coming and that is being in the company of the redeemed and being you know sitting on the davidic throne in the millennial kingdom and then off into eternity you know in the new heavens and the new earth that's what kept his focus we need, to, we need to be sure that we're not emphasizing the divinity of Christ to the, to the minimization of his humanity because he was human. He was human. Okay. All right. So we do that. Lest you become weary. If you don't do this, you will become weary, which is an illness that arises out of weakness, discouraged the illness progresses to the point of faintness and incapacitation verse 4 says you have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin to resist is to mount an all-out opposition in striving to struggling against sin the author is here saying that they are not giving it all they got and the reason might be that their focus is all wrong so, then the first exhortation on how to keep from arriving at this state is to keep your focus on Jesus. Just like Breck Weathers, our ability to do that will really be determined by how much we love Christ and desire to see him face to face. Breck Weathers survived the catastrophe on Mount Everest because he kept his focus on the object of his love, and that was his wife and children. Okay, moving on. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 11. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chases and scourges every son whom he receives. You see that? So let's just stop right there for a minute. Okay? So we talk about chastening, right? And we think of chastening, you know, getting punished. You know, maybe getting the belt, you know, I I joke around with my students and my dad used to use the belt on me. And one of the students says, ah, that ain't nothing. My mother uses an HDMI cable on me. (laughs) I said, wow. I said, I thought the wooden slipper in the belt was bad. I said, man, I don't want to mess with your mama. I said, I would do whatever your mama tells you to do, right? Right. And so we think of chastening in that way, right? But look at what it says, scourges every son. That is an all-inclusive term. So now think about the scourging. So now you, we, can begin to, we can begin to understand that sometimes, right? And I think we need to make this, disi- this distinction. And I think the distinction is being made here in the text. So that sometimes we suffer... Because uh, it's suffering that God brings upon us. Because there's something about us that he wants us to see. For example, Job. Right? So, So all of this suffering was brought on Job. He was a righteous man. And, you know, we say three friends. It was actually four. Right? And you'll notice at the end... Uh, God did not charge Job with any wrong, but he charged three friends. And I'm thinking to myself, which one did he not charge with wrong? It must have been uh, Eliezer, the last one, right? In any case, God didn't, an- in all of Job's questioning why, what have I done? God never answered that question. But what he did was, and this was an interesting A very interesting point that I got by watching a rabbinical commentary on this, that that while God never answered Job's question, he showed him how he governed his creation. And that potentially somehow, in some way, the suffering that Job went through was part of his governance of the creation. That's an interesting point, right? All things are connected, right? But he also, he, he, but the other point, the counterpoint to that or the other possibility or again, the counterpoint is that God brought his ability to control and order creation in such a beautiful way, even though it's fallen, that Job could trust him, could trust God, that he, God was there. Job was not alone. Right. And so and so, you know, we we have that. And so Job would certainly be the, the, you know, the I think the prime example in the Holy Scriptures of a son, a faithful son who is being scourged. It's painful. You know, And, and the scourging is designed to strip the flesh off of the skin. So the text says so there's so there's suffering that comes as part of along the same trajectory, you know, that we see in Job that it's it's a it's part of the way God has ordered his creation that somehow some way our suffering factors in to how God has ordered the creation and to what end He's going to bring it, okay? So we have we have that, uh, and I think it's I think I think it's good to think about that a little bit more. So, and to bring something in the process, it brings something out of us that we need to see. It's kind of like gold that is refined in the fire. Right. So there's that. There's that aspect of it, not necessarily being directly related to any sin in our lives. But then there's another kind of suffering that is in response to some sin in our life. And so God is disciplining us and chastening us to bring that sin out of us. So while we're going through this. It's important to, you know, am I going through this because there's something going on in my life, you know, or is this, I think this is, there's something that God wants me to see here about myself or something around me that I'm not seeing, Um, or is it because of some sin, something in me, right? And so while we're going through that, and, and if you, when you're in that place, there's a certain degree of anguish (laughs) that you're under right and so now you're you know your mind and your thinking is all rolled up in a ball and all over the place and to keep from letting that get out of control and get out of balance the way to do that is to keep our eyes focused on Jesus right yes
1: so would you say obviously
0: Suffered for God's sake. For, I mean, Because he has aligned as his child when God brings him up to to Satan himself. I mean obviously he's living an upright life. Before. Yeah, it, it was almost like a. when you look at it, it's almost like a bet. You know. Have you seen have you seen my servant Job, righteous in all his ways, upright and and Satan is like, Oh yeah, well that's because, you know, you've hedged him around and, and so it's almost like a bet that's taking place between them, right? Uh, it, that's the way it, it seems at you know at face value, um, but yeah, I uh, suffering for God's sake in what way? Well, in the sense that because he's a righteous man, just as just kind of Paul reiterates in the New Testament, sometimes we suffer for righteousness' sake. Yeah. We're, we're with God. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So there's all kinds of things going on around Job, but I really like that idea that I heard from that rabbi that says it was an intricate Job suffering was an intricate part of how God chose to order and govern his creation. That minus that, things would be different. You know, it's kind of like you see those movies where, you know, you're not supposed to, Star Trek movies, you're not supposed to go into the past. Because if you go into the past and if Spock meets Spock, it's going to, you know, change history, right? Now think about that. Think about what would have happened... That's a valid point. Think about what would have happened if Job didn't go through that. There'd be minus one book in the New Testament. Right? And I'll tell you something else. I'll tell you something else. I've got no better commiserating partner than Job. Me and Job, we commiserate a lot. You know? So... So that is because I'll read parts of Job and I'll say, "Yeah, that's exactly what I'm feeling right now," mm-hmm. you know.
1: Well, you we also have the look at what's going on around Job right? in, in the young scene.
0: That's right. That's right. That, that, that There's that, that component.
1: And that's a, that's a book. In that
0: and I just mentioned this in, at passing. When we had the teachers meeting, I woke up that morning and I'm telling you, my body was buzzing and I felt horrible. And I said, this is really weird. And I said, I don't think I'm going to be able to do school today. I just don't think I'm going to be able to do it. And I got myself up out of bed and I had my oatmeal and my bread. And I said, I'm going to tough it out. That was the day that Roberto approached me. and i said- and I said the opposition if you remember I said it to you, the opposition was really strong that morning. You see that component we need to be cognizant of that because that is at play in our lives and you know as we were talking about Michael heiser before class, that's what I like about him is we seem to have somehow filtered out the supernaturalism out of our faith right we we're 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 theoretical supernaturalists, but practical materialists, right? And so, and so those components are all at work. And, and how do we know that? Well, we see it in the book of Job. You know, and so think of how things would be different if Job did not endure those things. Yes. yes absolutely, I absolutely believe that, mm-hmm. and doug and i you you and I have talked about this yes. that it begins to break your hold on this life yes, yes. yep yeah abs- that's absolutely true, okay, well, let me finish this off. I'd like to I'm almost there um but if you God deals with you as sons and scourges every son who he receives, verse seven, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. So this is another thing that helps get us through these dark times is chastening is proof of sonship. Right? Okay. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Okay. So there, there's a, uh, obviously, it's a, I believe it's a quote. Uh, I don't have the reference, but I believe that is a quote out of the Old Testament. You have forgotten. It is completely forgotten, caused by, take lightly, account of little value, something that can easily get lost in the midst of suffering and trial. The exhortation of our Father to us, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Chastening is not punitive, but rather a training program that produces health, endurance, and tenacity. Do not despise means to make little of, to u- underestimate its importance and value in your life. The difficulty sometimes, but it's not too difficult, is determining, okay, what is, why is this happening? Is it happening to me because I'm being chastened by the Lord? Or is it happening to me for some other reason? Right? Sometimes, in the initial stages, it can be difficult to figure out which one. But the way it seems to me, the way it seems to work in my life is that in the midst of it, God brings some deficiency in my spirituality to the forefront through it. And I'll pray about it, Lord, if this is it. Show me, you know, and and he does it it, it always, it always seems to click in in just the right way. It's not an audible voice, but it just seems to be the way providentially things line up to say, yeah, that's it. You know so um, we shouldn't underestimate its importance of value in our lives the hardships of our lives and the sovereignty of God okay over on the next page look at that I'm through 11 verses okay point three why not for whom the Lord loves he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives Hebrews 12, 7, I'll read it again. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? It's proof positive of parental relationship and love, even those times when scourging is necessary. Verses 8 to 10, no chastening or rebuking or scourging, no sonship. So the ultimate aim then is for our prophet that we may become partakers of his holiness. Partake is his participant, a participant in the very nature of who he is. Holiness is set apart in a moral sense. It is meant to break, and this is what you the point you were making, it is meant to break our attachment to the world, its things, and the God who is the ruler of this age. But it does hurt. Verse 11 says, no chastening seems joyful for the present. It's not joyful. It's not enjoyable. It's painful, it's a heavy weight, it hurts, but it brings the peaceable fruit of righteousness, literally the fruit which brings peace to those who have been trained by it. Jesus in verse two kept his focus on the joy set before him, we must do the same. He kept his focus on that which he loved, us, and made it up his mountain to the cross, so too must we. Always kept first and foremost in his mind that this was the father's sovereign will and working in his life so too must we and I'll just leave it at that okay so I made it through that section I made it through 11 verses and I think with that I'm pretty much talked out any questions or comments
1: Picture that we're supposed to strive for as husbands, mm-hmm. right. but it, it also relates to our our relationship with our wives or spouses. Here. Yep. That that what gets us through, like the Sherpit story, is focused on the life.
0: Yep. Yep. All right. Any other questions? Yes, Wilfredo. Ro- Well but
1: like you know, the, like especially here in America, like the, the lack of it.
0: So, right. So. so personal holiness is basically together with the Holy Spirit and God's word, identifying those areas in, in in your life that are not that are not in accordance with what God's will for your life is. Right? So for example, The Bible doesn't say anything. There's no prohibition against alcohol consumption in the Bible. I had this conversation with someone recently. But there definitely is a prohibition against drunkenness, right? So, so at some point, the true believer who is struggling with that or who is under the dominance of that sin will come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit isn't just going to zap you and take you know, the alcoholism away from you. You're going to have to work at it, right? And, but the reason why you work at it, the, the prime motivation, aside from the fact that you don't want to be running around, you know, a blithering alcoholic for the rest of your life here, is because you know that it's displeasing to him. You know that it's displeasing to him, and you know that it stands as an obstacle in deepening your relationship with him. As an example, someone asked me about this I said, how does that work? You know when you're, you're driving, let's say you're driving from here to Boston and you have a favorite radio station, 99 point whatever it is. right? And you, you're okay until you get about to Sturbridge and then the signal starts to fade. And as you go farther and farther away from the source, what you get is static. That's kind of like what sin is like. It's like static, right? And so the closer you move to the source, the less the static becomes. And the, and the clearer the transmission is. But the further away you go from the source, the more the static increases and the clarity of the transmission decreases. So cultivation of personal holiness says this thing, is bringing a lot of static in my ability to hear clarity what God is saying to me. And so I'm going to start working on getting closer to the signal and dealing with the sin issue. That's personal holiness. I don't know if that makes any sense. Now it makes
1: sense. And the other question was you say fasting
0: a tool. It's a tool. It's a tool to bring your body. Your biological, what was the term you used, Doug? Biological appetites or biological, biological proclivities? Urges. Urges. Biological urges under control, right? So, for example, overeating. Well, what is the great way to get control of overeating? Fasting, you know? Or even, it's just a way, because your body has its own, believe it or not, Your body has its own will. When I say your body, your flesh. Your flesh has its own will. The flesh is at war with God. And it will always be at war with God. That's why it has to go into the ground. Right? But that doesn't mean that you can't bring it into subjection, at least to a certain degree in this life. Fasting is a tool that helps accomplish that. It's entirely up to you. And then as Pastor Roman said, sometimes it's not necessarily a total fast from food, but it can be giving up something that you know you enjoy, but it's feeding the natural man, not the spiritual man, right? Well, it could be food, you know. Yeah.
1: Right. So, if Facebook is a problem for you, then fast from Facebook. Yeah. And take us about it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't recommend anybody jump into fasting full bore right out, right out of the starting gate. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, no, no.
1: You can, you can do stuff like I'm going to only have juice today.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Or I'm only going to have Twinkies today. <laughs> you know. <or laughs> I'm only going to have prime rib today. No. I, <laughs> wow. No. But this is exactly. But wait a minute. This is exactly how this practice was abused in ancient times. Right? by
1: practicing fasting also helps you to be more. have that personal
0: Well, it, well it, it'll, it helps you gain control. The inner man. The spiritual man. The man that has been made alive by the Spirit of God, which wasn't there before, but it's there now. It's at war. So the new Wilfredo is at war with the old Wilfredo, right? The new Wilfredo is the spiritual inner man that's been redeemed by God, that's been made alive, brought to... It's a 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I think, or 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If any man be in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. That means something that has not existed before. So the new Wilfredo is at war with the old, or, or rather, the old Wilfredo does not like the new Wilfredo. And so the old Wilfredo is at war with the new Alfredo. So the new, the new Wilfredo, according to the New Testament, can help get beat the old Wilfredo back into his doghouse, one tool that can be used is fasting. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. Now, it's not an easy thing to do, and like I said, I'm going to fast for 24 hours. Yeah, I got out of bed and within 20 minutes, I was swizzling toast and coffee. You know, and so, so I'm like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Right. Well, you know what? I've succeeded at that. I've succeeded at getting off of caffeine. So, um, yeah, I was surprised. I thought I was going to really suffer because I've been drinking coffee since I was 10, you know, but it really wasn't all that hard. So anyway, but I didn't do it to cultivate holiness, right? I did it because, you know, it was jacking up my heart rate and things like that. So there was n- really no eternal value to it.